Welcome to Loading Doc Talks. I'm Chef Prithi Mystery, and every week we talk to my favorite food folks about their lives, food, and social justice, and we do a little shit talking too. Being a chef in your own restaurant can be really isolating, and so whenever we go and do these gala events where we get to cook with other chefs, inevitably a number of chefs and sous chefs end up on the loading dock just sipping on a beer or whiskey, and we start to have these conversations that we never really get to have with each other because we're all siloed in our own restaurants. And sometimes it's shit talking, sometimes it's gossip, sometimes it's sharing things about ourselves because we want to get to know our colleagues. The natural progression for me from the community that we were always building and that existed and was nurtured at Navi and at Juhu Beach Club was what happened afterwards, which was, you know, I was like, what am I doing with my life? I started reaching out to my friends and colleagues, and I happened to be a not very competitive person. I happen to be a very collaborative person. So that means that I have a lot of friends. Because I appreciate every chef or restaurant owner and the things that they're doing. And I don't see their success as competition. I just see it as their success as my success. I miss that community when I didn't have the restaurants. You know, I had a whole social everything. It was like every single night, I'm just like a host of a party. And <laughs> all these cute people come in. It's like, you know, it was very rare that an entire night would go by where like at least one person I didn't know uh, from some aspect of my life would come in. So for me, it was like, how do I continue to build that and keep that community and foster that community? And so after the restaurants closed, I did a tremendous amount of traveling, whether it was speaking, going to a conference, being on a panel, doing dinners and events or, you know, food and wine festival stuff. And so I was meeting all of these chefs from around the country and building those networks. To me, I just... I love people. So like, I'm just so excited about meeting interesting, cool people doing interesting, cool things. So, so for me, the podcast is sort of a continuation of all of this community. It's people near and far who I think are amazing people in the food and food adjacent world that I've met over the years. And so I really want to take this opportunity to continue to use my platform to raise other people's visibility and also just have good conversations. You know, whether it's like just women chefs talking to each other or BIPOC folks talking to each other or queer people talking to each other, there's there's a way in which our experience in the food space is different. And these things that I might get angry about or lash out about on Twitter, that's not the whole story. There's also a lot of joy. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of care and compassion and genuine interest in each other's stories and lives and futures. We can build those together. This week, we're talking to chef and cookbook author Asha Gomez. I first heard about Asha years ago when she had her restaurant Cardamom Hill, and I've been following her for a very long time and being inspired by 
her unique and really authentic approach to Southern Indian cuisine. And her food just looks fucking delicious. We're going to be starting this episode the way I'm hoping to start most of our episodes, and that is talking about early and sort of mid-childhood. And the reason I wanted to do that with all of my guests is I feel like it's something that, you know, we talk a lot about people's professional careers and trajectory, but we don't often talk about what that person was like when they were five years old or 10 years old. And I think some of those foundational moments and history in our lives really do make up so much of who we end up being as adults. I hope you all enjoy my interview with Asha Gomez. Here you go. First and foremost, I want to, you know, I'll go chronologically. So five years old, tell me about five-year-old Asha. Were you still living in India? What are the tastes, the smells, what was on the radio? Like what was going on in your world when you were five? Five-year-old, I grew up in a fishing Mm -hmm. community, Kerala. Um, My mom and her sisters live in this communal compound where everybody has a home inside this compound. And my great-grandma and great-grand-aunt's home is in that property as well and has Mm -hmm. a traditional kitchen with the coal and the firewood. And then all the other houses have the more modernized kitchens. I was the first girl after... 13 boys in my mom's side of the family. Um, Wow. Yes. (laughs) Like all her (laughs) sisters, everybody was just having boys. My mom, I have three brothers uh, older than me. So I didn't have girls around me. So I literally grew up in the kitchen with my mom and her sisters, like my mom and my aunts. So I'm not a classically trained chef. So even from the age Mm -hmm. of five, you know, that was my world. I grew up in a kitchen. I grew up running home after, like even in first grade, coming to my grandma's great-grand-aunt's house. And she had this room in the house that was just to ripen fruit. So in mango season, (laughs) it would be hay on the floor and baskets of different varieties of mangoes. It's a dark room, um, banana stalks hanging, jackfruit ripening. And I'd run home and open those doors because I couldn't wait to get my hands on a mango in the summertime. Um, Music-wise, this is going to be strange for people when they hear it, but I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and... um, What's strange about that? (laughs) You know, people always like, you grew up in India and that's what, you know, and my dad was into Stephanie Mills and Diana Mm -hmm. Ross, um, ABBA... Bonnie yes, M. Abba. Yes. yes, Bonnie M. Yes. You know, I was born in London, so Bonnie M was uh yes. was big. It was as well. Great music. Um my dad was a civil engineer for a German company and so he was stationed mostly out of Europe. So I had a nice rounded experience when it came to music because of him. It's interesting. Uh, the same thing. A lot of times, people would ask me at Juhu, like, "Why do you? Why don't you play more like Bollywood music <laughs> or Indian music in here?" And I would just be like, "If you go to Mumbai right now exactly. and you go to a restaurant like this, this is exactly what they'll be playing: Drake and Rihanna." Okay. Yep. <laughs> like yep. that's what we play, and sometimes Dolly Parton. Like we mix it up. Yes, country um. music is big. My dad used to love George Jones. Um, really? Yes. 
And Willie Nelson. Awesome. I mean, yes. Nice. Yes. Um, okay, so let's fast forward a little. Talk about 10 years old. Um, 10 years old, we had moved to Mumbai for a short stint because mm-hmm. of my dad's um, job. Uh-huh. And it was so amazing because it was an introduction to North India and street food and chaat and Holi and Diwali and all the festivals that, you know, in Kerala Mm -hmm. that I didn't grow up celebrating. I got to experience all of that at 10 years of age in India. And so tell me about like this introduction to like city life. Like how does that change from being in this sort of seems like very like natural you know, country yes. trees and all the stuff to like knowing Mumbai city. Yeah. It was very yeah. different. Uh, I grew up on a beach, like literally we crossed the street and it was the beach. I woke up to the sound of church bells tolling and fishermen mm-hmm. pulling in their nets in the morning chanting. And then to come to Bombay and the hustle and bustle of Bombay was definitely jarring, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. Mm. (laughs) I loved it. I loved the freedom that I had as a 10-year-old in Mumbai, that I could go to my friends' houses and, you know, boys and girls were playing together and climbing trees and stealing mangoes from the neighbor's yard. It was just... I loved my city experience because it allowed me to blossom Mm -hmm. that which I felt like in Kerala was a little more restricted living in Kerala. And so I really feel like it came into myself when we moved to Mumbai. What were you thinking about? Like, what was the sort of like when when you envision like here you are, you're, you know, 10, 11 years old. You've had this experience of living in this very sort of rural place. And now you're living in, you know, literally it's been called maximum city. Mm -hmm. What were the sorts of thoughts about when you sort of looked into your future or thought about the things you were interested in and where you wanted to go from there. So at 10, by that time, we knew that we were going to be coming to the U.S. Mm-hmm. My father's brother was a priest here and had sponsored us. And, you know, so at that point, I was really envisioning being in America, like coming to America. And my dad, you know, kind of telling us stories of how it would be. And it's still, you never ever really prepared <laughs> You know, no matter how much someone tries to prepare you. And then shortly after that, we came to the U.S. I was just 13 when we got our papers and, you know, we got our green card and we migrated to the U.S. He was in Lansing, Michigan. Mm -hmm. My brothers were 18 at the time and uh, my parents had enrolled them at Michigan State. I have twin brothers. They were enrolled in college. I went to eighth grade just for three months in Michigan, in Lansing, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then we went back to India because the plan was to just come every year. My dad didn't really want to be here, uh, but he wanted us to have the opportunity to have the choice of being here. Then after that, we moved back to Kerala. And till I was 16, I would come to the U.S. every summer. And then when I was 16, my father had a very untimely death he passed away he had a cardiac arrest and that's when mom and I moved with my brothers here permanently and it was New York (laughs) we moved to New York what was your first but the first place you came was Lansing Michigan first place I came was Lansing Michigan great actually school experience 
a very welcoming community. Um, mm. But it was such a short period of time. I remember the first time it snowed and just my excitement because I'd never seen snow and the teacher sent mm. all the kids out with me from the class to play with me in the snow. So that aspect of school was actually positive. And then I came back to New York City <laughs> Yeah. And high school, 11th grade, was a nightmare. Why? Uh, I was in Jamaica, Queens. I was not prepared for what high school is like here. And mm -hmm. I had a really difficult time connecting with people and making friends. And I'm not a loner. So I came from an environment yeah. where I was just, ex you know, full of life and exuberant and 11th grade here just shunned me into this corner where I got bullied in school. I mm. remember taking Indian food to school once and, you know, if there was a toilet I could have crawled under, I would have. Mm. And I remember coming home and telling my mom, I don't care, like send me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every single day. I was made to feel like I was different. It was very, very difficult transition for me. But luckily, I didn't have to do 12th grade because, you know, the Indian standard of education is so much higher than here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so I was given the opportunity to take the SATs as soon as 11th grade was done and I didn't have to do 12th. Nice. And then I was in college and it was much better. By that point, I'd kind of gotten a little comfortable in my skin Where did you go to college? Queens College, New York. <laughs> it was a great experience. So I always knew I wanted to be in skincare. And I mentioned this to my family. And my family is like, well, no, you're not going to be a beauty school dropout. You're going to go to college, finish college. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You're like, but um, we have a song and everything. Come on. <laughs> you know. We have a theme um, song. <laughs> So I finished college and I head to India and I went to India and studied Ayurvedic skincare for like a year and okay. a half. And mm -hmm. then I came back and that's pretty much what I did. I owned an Ayurvedic spa um, and I did all Ayurvedic treatments and the spa actually had a kitchen component to it because every treatment ended with a meal that I had cooked. Nice. It did extremely well. Um, in 2008... When the economy crashed, I was an ultra, ultra luxury good. Mm. And we literally overnight went from 80, 90% occupancy to like 10%. So um. I had to cut the bleeding, close my doors. Mm -hmm. What happened in the interim was I just adopted my son from India, my boy, Ethan. And so I said, you know, I'm going to be a mom for a little bit, take a break. Yeah. But what happened was I started getting all these requests from my guests who had been my clients at the spa and everybody was asking about the food, which I thought was so strange. I was like, doesn't anybody want to know where the next spa location is? <laughs> and everybody's like, well, where can we get your food? And so I said, my home was big enough. I was like, you know, I'll do a supper club. I'll seat 20 people around the table, especially the ones uh -huh. who requested it and we'll call it a day. Well, my first supper club, I ended up having Delta Sky, Atlanta Magazine, like some really key press people on the table, which I wasn't even aware of at the time. And what started off as something I was going to do just once, once or twice out of my home ended up becoming a supper club 
for an entire year, every single weekend, we would get booked out, right? It was months in advance for the booking. Uh-huh. Next thing you know, I'm renting like the Macy's downtown atrium and I'm serving sadhya for 250 Americans sitting on the floor, wow. <laughs> eating out of banana leaves with their hands. Yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how my first restaurant, Cardamom Hill, came about. And then our first year out, we ended up getting a James Beard nod for Best New Restaurant because it was really focusing on Kerala regional cuisine. Mm -hmm. I hated it, though. I hated (laughs) the restaurant business. All the accolades were coming in. And three years into the business, I was poor. Like, literally, Mm -hmm. I had not known what it was to be poor like that because... I was writing everybody a check but myself. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't understand how this model of restaurant was actually functional for anybody, you know? And then I opened another patisserie. None of it was really, my heart was in nothing. And then I found this space and I said, you know, I'm just going to build my dream kitchen and I'm going to do whatever my heart desires there. I'm going to do dinners. I'm going to teach classes. And the, at the time, I just had this vision. And so I did. I built my dream kitchen. Um, I didn't have much funding because, as you know, I was mm-hmm. poor. <laughs> but really creative ways. I started approaching companies and saying, you know, okay. would you consider us to be a showroom? And mm. long story short, somebody ended up sponsoring all the equipment, which was the bulk of the expense, right? And we had a great partnership with um, this German company called Miela for four years. Mm-hmm. And that's really how Third Space came about. And I closed all my other doors and Third Space has been around now going into its eighth year. Congratulations. Thank you. And I've never walked into Third Space and not felt absolute joy, like joy. Mm. It's just me. I have one other person that helps me. Um, Mm -hmm. It's generally about $200 a person to sit at the table. Um, Mm -hmm. Before the pandemic, I would open it up and, you know, I could seat up to 32 per seating but most of my events are private corporate dinners and team building events where people come in and have like a team building experience and then end up having a meal at the end of it but what was amazing about it (laughs) was it was financially lucrative and sustainable and I was able to have a life again and I, I, I feel like you know, this pandemic, if it has shown us anything, is that the traditional restaurant model really is, it's so antiquated. Yeah. And we really need to move away from it. And for me as a woman, as a mother, it allowed me so much freedom to have a career and still be a mom to my kid. You know, I didn't have to give up either or. When I had the restaurant, I didn't see Ethan like five days out of the week. Mm-hmm. And my poor kid would be sleeping in the kitchen. I had built, I had a little office table and under it, I put like a little twin mattress and I would put, tuck mm-hmm. him into sleep there. It was just such a difficult environment. Yeah, well, cheers. Cheers to having a life again. Yeah, and it's been great. It's been great. I'm so glad to hear that. And I think the misconception that you can't be relevant in the food world if you don't have a brick and mortar in a traditional sense is just such a myth. Mm -hmm. 
because you can create a niche for yourself, you know, if you're passionate about what you do in whatever realm of the food world you choose to be. And sometimes you have to carve out your own lane. In this next segment, I talk to Asha about the issues she's passionate about, one of which is an NGO called care.org that helps women all around the world. We're also going to delve into a controversy around John T. Edge, the 20-plus year head of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and its relationship to an Indian American dinner series called Brown in the South. Asha was quoted in the New York Times regarding the controversy this past summer 2020, and you get to hear all about it next. So when I opened my first restaurant, Cardamom Hill, Mm -hmm. that's really when, honestly speaking, I started deeply diving into Southern cuisine and Mm. finding all these connections. You know, I come from a coastal region. You know, when you think of port cities like Savannah and Charleston Mm -hmm. um, and all the influences that come into port cities. And, and just finding ingredients that, you know, cane syrup and jaggery, you know, it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. It's melted jaggery. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think of vindaloo sauce and you think of a barbecue sauce, um, there's yep. so many similarities there. <laughs> so I just started, you know, finding these connections and... That's how my two sats came about. And that's really what Cardamom Hill ended up being. It ended up being that synergy that I felt through food um, and it, how beautifully it came together on a plate. Um, yeah. and, and my two sats kind of embodied that. I cook in color is really more the way I cook today. And I think I felt so restricted, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll have whether any magazine, national, magazine that's calling you is always calling you for an Indian recipe and I'm like well you'll ask Nigella Lawson and I love her for Mm -hmm. a Kerala coconut curry but you don't think that I can make a marinara which I've been making in my Mm -hmm. kitchen for 20 years Uh, why is that why is that that as a chef of color as an immigrant chef I'm just kind of restricted to my ancestral kitchen yeah (laughs) I lived in this country for 30 plus years I've traveled the world over Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I literally can cook food from different regions of the world. So I Cook in Color was really about bringing that to light and not feeling like I was getting boxed into, Mm -hmm. you know, just cooking a particular cuisine from a particular region of the world. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that because I think that that's, that's such an incredibly true thing. I know that um, I knew when I started cooking professionally, even though I was cooking in European restaurants, that eventually I wanted to cook Indian food. But at the same time, I feel like it was very clear to me that if I had really decided that my passion was Italian yeah. or, you know, French or something, people would just be like, what are you doing? Mm, exactly. So I totally get you. And, and I'm the same way. Like I at home, I'm, you know, last night we had pasta with Brussels sprouts and bacon and oregano. Sounds yummy. Yeah, it's pretty good. It was pretty tasty. But like, yeah, we I mean, you know, I cook Thai inspired dishes. I cook Vietnamese inspired dishes, Chinese, you know, all sorts of things. But, you know, I'm trying to think, I think as people of color, we deal with microaggressions on an everyday basis. And we learn to get comfortable with it. We learn to just adjust and keep it moving, right? Um, But every day I can pinpoint some form of microaggression that I may have 
gotten when I was younger, as I grew older, whether it was in the workspace or otherwise. And for me now, when I look at Ethan, I don't want him to be uncomfortable yeah. for someone yeah. else's comfort. Exactly. I want him to be able to say, I don't like what you said. I don't appreciate it. And I want him to, to have his voice, you know, because I didn't for the longest time, I would just be like, well, it's the way it is, you know, just be quiet and keep it moving. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you learn to get comfortable with the microaggressions. And I don't want that for my child. Well, I think it's something that we're taught, especially as like, you know, I feel like my parents didn't necessarily have the choice um, to speak up. And so what they sort of instilled in us was like, just keep your head down and do your work. Don't let it bother you. Just focus on what you're doing and just, you know, keep it moving. As you said, keep it moving. Be really good at what you're doing. Study hard, get a good job and everything's going to be fine. You know, (laughs) exactly. You know, I feel like I remember the first time I got uh, stopped at the Canadian border. And this was pre 9 11. And so at that time, like all you needed was a driver's license if you're Mm -hmm. a U.S. citizen. And I was. Um, And, you know, of course, me and my white friend, they pull us over and they're like, start asking me all these questions like, you know, were you born in the United States? Yep. No. But like, I'm just like, you know, if I if this was two white girls in this car, they wouldn't be asking that question. They'd be like, oh, you know, welcome back to America, exactly. ladies. Um, you know, we'd gone to Toronto for like a weekend, long weekend or something. They, they brought us inside and asked me, like, let's find out if you're a citizen of anywhere and all this stuff. And, you know, and my friend just thought it was funny. And I was like, it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I got home and I tell my parents and they're just like, why don't you just take your passport? Next time, just take your passport. Um, and I was like, but that's not the point. Exactly. I shouldn't have to. You shouldn't And have I think to. that's really the shift, right? It's sort yeah. of like, you know, their generation really needed to not rock the boat in order to give us the opportunities to be in a position where we can exactly. have the confidence to say, actually, no, I'm not okay with this. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what I see in Ethan. And I think every generation just, you know, the voice gets stronger and stronger and the self-worth, I think, you know and the dignity um, that we all should feel as human beings is something that we feel emboldened in and we don't take it lightly anymore. Like I look at Ethan and I think mm-hmm. about myself when I was younger, you know, there isn't, people always ask me where I was from. <laughs> like, you know, I've right. lived in this country for 30 years. I'm from New York. What do you mean? <laughs> um, and Ethan to this day will get where you're from. I mean, my kid knows no other country, but these United States of America, right? Mm-hmm. This is his home. Mm-hmm. This is his country, but he'll still get asked. I mean, and that's jarring to me. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? You know, but you would never ask a white kid that. <laughs> no, I got asked that just the other day. You know, sometimes I'll I'll go into it with people and explain the complexities of someone who can't just pinpoint one place. But uh, with this person, I didn't want to go there. And so I just looked at him and I was like, Ohio. It's sad because, you know, there was this one instance that happened to Ethan where he's in the, I'm trying to think now, sixth grade. Yeah, sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And... It's around the time of 9-11, right? Mm. It's, and Ethan actually doesn't know much about 9-11 because he's so young. Um, 
And the girl says, you know, it's your people, right? So your people oh are the reason for 9-11. So Ethan comes home that day and has no idea what any of it meant. He goes, you know, mommy. Mm -hmm. So very casually, right? Like in <laughs> passing, he's like, you know, mommy, this girl said that our people are responsible for 9-11. And I just, my heart just sunk. I said, what? Mm. Um, and I couldn't just sit by. I said, Ethan, you know, essentially she just called you a terrorist, right? And he only learned about 9-11 after that because it became such a learning wow. experience. But I remember calling the school right away and addressing it with the principal. And she said, I'm so sorry. And I said, I really would like to meet the parent of this child. Because in my mind, I had already made the assumption that this parent was the reason this child mm. said this, right? So I had already judged her. Right. Long story short, I get a call an hour later. She says, the parent has left a job mm -hmm. and she has run to school. If you can come. I walk into that room and this parent runs over to me, hugs me, sobbing. Mm. And is just so disturbed by what her child said. And she says to me, you know, I'm in an interracial relationship. You know, I'm divorced. I'm dating an African-American man. I want you to know this is not something she learned in my home. And it was such a teachable moment for me because I really did judge that parent without knowing the crux of the situation, right? And then the school made it into a conversational piece and, you know, something beautiful ended up coming out of it where the two mothers got together and decided that we were going to actually do something about it and have a conversation about race oh, and racism. Amazing. Yeah. So that's so awesome. I think, you know, if I'd gone home and told my mom or you'd probably, you know, they would have probably brushed it off. And so I think that's where it is, right? We are empowering our children to have their voices be heard. And I will spend the rest of my life doing that. <laughs> I love it. I feel like we could talk about all of this forever. I want to, I, I really want to hear a little bit about care.org. This is an organization that has very near and dear to your heart. So care is an NGO that really is about girls, education, women's empowerment. You know, they deal with food insecurity, malnutrition. They're in 90 countries. They have hundreds mm. of programs all over the world. So my, the part that I played with them was, for example, I, I went to Peru with them and I went and visited potato farmers and mm -hmm saw how farmers there had formed a consortium and worked in conjunction with a famous chef there and uh, how much of an impact changing a menu item made mm -hmm. for farmers and local indigenous uh, produce because for the longest time, the potato farmers in Peru were really struggling. They couldn't get people, Peruvians, to buy okay. the potatoes. And, you know, this. 5,000 varieties of potatoes in the world, 4,500 of which grow in Peru. And yeah. yet the only potatoes people wanted to buy were the white potatoes and the red potatoes. Um, uh. So Chef Gaston, this chef in Lima, decides mm -hmm. um, to go meet with the farmers. They form a consortium. He starts putting all these local Peruvian potatoes on his menu. You know, next thing you know, you know, four or five almost Close to five years later, uh, now potato farmers are actually able to make a sustainable living by mm. a chef deciding that he was going to highlight that ingredient. So 
I'm just visiting programs like that, visiting programs yeah. where malnutrition, for example, this one region in Peru, uh, Ayacucho, Peru, the malnutrition rate among the children was 80%. Um, care gets involved and they give these women microloans, $100 microloans to grow kui. Okay. Which is? Guinea pigs. Guinea pigs. Yes. You know, these women get these microloans and start growing these guinea pigs, eating alfalfa mm -hmm. sprouts. They produce, you know, really fast. And that the introduction of that one protein into that region actually mm. bought down the malnutrition rate to 30%. Wow. But then that became a viable financial model for the women who are mm. now selling kui at the market as well. So, you know, so what they do is I would go, I would see these programs, and then I would go knock on congressional and Senate doors all over the U.S or in the Capitol. And um, anytime a bill was on the floor and they needed funding for a particular program, I would go sit on behalf of CARE and, you know, um, lobby for them, essentially. I love it. And it sounds like they're doing these sort of really large global programs that are having affecting some pretty amazing sort of impactful change. Very much so. 90 countries. They're in 90 countries. Um, and they're headquartered out of Atlanta. So that's why I'm able to have such a close relationship with them. That's that's awesome. I've been able to be involved with some organizations here, and I'm getting more involved with um, some food insecurity organizations up here called Farm to Pantry. So we glean on large farms that have excess produce, and then all of that goes to food banks and food pantries. Amazing. It's amazing. It's it's. It's so amazing to watch how active chefs have become and how mm -hmm. vocal they've become with their voices. You know, for the longest time, I thought you had to be wealthy to do good in the world. I mm. honestly did. I was like, if you don't have money, you can't really do anything for anyone. And then, you know, you come to that moment where you realize that your voice is powerful and that your voice matters when you bring attention to issues that are near and dear to you. And mm -hmm. that is a powerful tool. Your voice is a powerful tool. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like that's why I, you know, continue to shout on Twitter about anything and everything. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I know there was an issue this past, was it the summer or spring? I can't even remember when it was. Yeah, I think it was before the um, pandemic. In regards kid. to the Southern Foodways Alliance. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to share about that. Um, I know you were able to be vocal about it in the article that was written um, in the New York Times. Am I right? Yes. I think for me, it was that, you know, we were doing, we were raising so much money and none of that money was going to any South Asian organization. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, here we are calling ourselves Brown in the South. I mean, I love Marwan and Vish and mm -hmm. Chidi and Manith and taking nothing away from any of them. Um, yeah. I just felt that I, I felt like it became a dog and pony show and I didn't want to be a part of that. Because you get invited to the table, right? Somebody mm -hmm. invites you to the table. So the SFA invites you to the table. And then you have to feel beholden to the SFA mm -hmm. for bringing you to the table. But then for years after that, you know, anyone that's bought to that table ends up fundraising for them in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? dinner after dinner after dinner where you get no compensation whatsoever, mm -hmm. raising funds for this organization that's brought you to the table. 
I don't shouldn't be made to feel beholden because I've done my part. I have spent the next couple of years <laughs> raising money for that organization. So it's not all altruistic that they bring someone to the table. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it, if if you start to feel like it's a it's a dog and pony show or like you're kind of a token, yes. um, it, it loses its charm. Um, it and, does. And you feel sort of like, wait a minute, I thought I was here because I am respected and have a dignified seat at the table. But in fact, I'm just sort of, am I just checking a box? And they mm-hmm. don't really want to know the full nuanced person and professional that I am and what I could bring. Um, but just yeah, this, sort of this one piece of you. Um, exactly. So, and, you know, I did get to be an honorary Southerner and do Brown in the South. So definitely <laughs> props to Mirwan and yes, Vish and, I mean, the, and all those folks. We had a great time. How amazingly organically it evolved. And, you know, I just, yeah. And I take nothing away from them. And every moment that I had with all of them was uh-huh. a joyful one, a one of camaraderie and one of just, you know, being with your people and feeling like you belonged. It was for mo- for the most part, the experience with my fellow chefs on that was a very mm. joyful one for me. What I didn't like was what was coming out of it was not beneficial to causes that I thought needed it needed to be beneficial to. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. In our last segment, we like to kind of do some like fun questions um, that are just kind of, you know, I mean, you could have a longer answer, but if you, you know, if your answer is just like one sentence, it's totally fine. Um, So because you mentioned your time in Mumbai, I'm adding this one. I didn't ask everyone else this question. Uh, Your favorite Indian street food dish? Oh my gosh, Pani Puri all day long. Yes! (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Yes. I am so with you. I'm so with you. You're going to a friend's house for the weekend. What are the three cooking tools that you're going to take with you? Uh, my spice dabba, my mortar mm-hmm. and pestle, and my tea. What's What tea is that? Black awesome tea. Awesome tea. <laughs> I okay. literally travel with my chai kit. I love it. Who's your favorite person to cook for? My son, Ethan. All right. I, I kind of knew where that was headed, but you know, I wanted to give you the organic opportunity to answer Pets. I'm, I'm interested in some pet history. Mm. Names, years. I know you have a pup right now. Two pups. But were there are there any in the past? I did. I, so I had um, a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel called Kira Girl mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. 17 years. Oh, wow. 17 years. And she passed away three years ago. And um, I was just not ready to have another, you know, for a baby yet. And then mm-hmm. this year, we decided, okay, we were gonna get, we were gonna get our dog, and so Ethan uh-huh. and I got a. Um, he's um, a Great Pyrenees and a standard poodle mix, um, Sid. Adorable. And three months into having him, I was like, you know, I think we should get a second dog because. I think they need company. <laughs> it was Aww. really, I just enjoyed having Sid so much. So after seven months with Sid, we recently got our second guy. His name is Rio. And Rio, Ethan named him after one of his favorite characters in Money Heist. Mm-hmm. And so now we have two fur babies and they are so much joy. I just, it's indescribable, the love they bring into our lives. It's 
indescribable. Well, I have to agree with you because I, you know, I, I love my wife and I don't know how I would have gone through this pandemic without her or with some other person. But also, yes. like, we constantly have these moments where we're like, what would we do if we were just the two of us in this cabin with no peppercorn? Like, if we didn't have peppercorn, like, what would we be so sad if we didn't have our furry little baby to snuggle with? And, you know, that's just... such a beautiful name. I love it. Peppercorn. <laughs> that's that's Anne. I can't take I, I can't take credit for that. That is my wife. But um, OK, so favorite taco filling or style? Um, barbacoa. Mm. And I've had this 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 tongue barbacoa in this local restaurant here. And oh my gosh, like every couple of weeks I have to go get a fix. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. Uh, what's your first wow memory? Like something that was different from what you were used to eating in your general life as a child that you tried that was something different that you were just like, wow, this is like blowing my mind in some way. Mm. I can talk about a food experience mm -hmm. that yeah. blew my mind. Like uh, my first time eating at Zaha Vet Michael. Mm. Um, yeah. It was just such an amazing meal. I mean, he said not everything on the menu, but it was a five-hour meal. And it was one of, I had this aha moment then that was just, wow. I saw a restaurant through different eyes. <laughs> I'd been so jaded. I was like, I don't know why people do this. And I remember having that meal and thinking to myself, okay, I know why people do this. <laughs> it was a total aha moment. This is amazing. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was the dish in particular throughout that meal that really sticks with you? They had a duck heart that... I was so shocked. My kid just couldn't stop eating. And when Michael came to the table and asked him what was his favorite thing, he says the duck heart. And Michael nice. just grabbed him, gave him a hug and took him into the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally see Mike doing that too. <laughs> yes. What is a favorite dish that your mom or grandma or aunt, some sort of older woman in your family makes that you just like love so much? Like whenever you go visit, they're like, I'm making that for Asha because I know that's her favorite. The first thing when I go to Kerala is my mom gets sardines. Like she fries <laughs> the sardines, fresh sardines mm -hmm. with this red masala and in mm. coconut oil with curry leaves. And oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I have no words. Um, wow. And she'll always make sure that I have that when I go. That sounds so delicious. I'm like literally like, <laughs> it's do I so need to good. go buy some sardines today? Right? <laughs> like, do I need to try that? I have a small curry leaf plant. Her name is Kiki Ben. That's named after my grandmother, Aww. who is Lalita, but everyone called her Kiki Ben. I'll share my favorite dish from my mom is okay. Gilard and Shak. You know Gilorda? They're like the ivy gourd. Oh, yes. Like Tindora. Yes. Yeah. She makes and she a, makes a vegetable she, with it? Yeah, she makes a vegetable dish with that and potatoes and uh, like classic Gujarati or dal. Like mm. normally that was like every Monday night. Like we, oh had, a, we had a set system. It was like Monday was Gyoranashak, Tuesday was Chorabatkadi, like Wednesday was mug. Like, um, but it doesn't matter now. Like it'll be Saturday. <laughs> My favorite Guju food is... I love bhajraka rotla with makan and gud, mm, like yes. fresh makan. It has to be fresh makan. Yes. It's it's funny because all of those things, so so bhajraka lot is actually um, uh, millet flour. Yes, yes, right? it is. Mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting to me, 
all of those things that you sort of read about in like a lot of Southern historical cooking. Mm-hmm. And then also when you sort of see these new, in quotes, uh, ingredients that these like bro chefs get all excited about, <laughs> like sorghum and millet and all this stuff. And I'm like, what yeah. is that? What is this new thing? And then I look it up and I'm like, oh, I've been eating that I've my entire life. <laughs> in my mother's kitchen. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so for me, uh, uh, Badrina Rotla is really definitely one of those things. It's I know. Like a, hey, In the winter. Actually... Oh, mm. So good. Mm. Delicious. Well, Asha, thank you so much for well, doing this. thank you this. for having me. you're in me. the middle of shooting your book still, right? Oh, no, I your finished my second book. My next okay. book I've just embarked on. I'm in the middle of opening okay. up my flower shop right now, but, oh, you know. amazing. Yes. Well, take care, Asha, and I hope we can see each other in real life soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye. bye. Thanks to Asha for joining us, and we will definitely be linking to herandcare.org so you can find out even more about them in the show notes. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can follow Loading Doc Talks in your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, leave a review or share it with a friend. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chef P Mystery. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to our pod and music production team, Copper and Heat, because they rock.